In the first chapter of Colossians, we can see the prayer ministry of the Apostle Paul emphasized. Right from the beginning almost, he talks about prayer. From verse 3, in fact, we give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Paul was a man of prayer. And as we go through the passage, we see that he actually articulates to these people what it is that he prays for them. Especially do we note this in verses 9 through 11. Let's read those again. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. Now there's a lot in these verses. And I have pointed out in a previous message that there are at least six requests that Paul makes for the people of God there. We dealt with the first three of those last time. He prayed, and mention is made here of the word desire, and I should again emphasize that that's what prayer is. Prayer is an articulating of desires. It's actually making desires known unto the Lord. Notice in verse 9, I do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will and so on. What was Paul's desire? Well, six vital things he prayed for. Number one, he desired that they might be enlightened concerning the will of God. Now, there are a couple of aspects to this that we noted. The will of God is something that can be considered in general. That is, the will of God for every believer in general is clearly outlined in Scripture. Basically, it is what God demands of his people. That's his will. What does God want us to do? Well, God wants us to be holy, for example. He wants us to abstain from sin. It is the will of God, even our sanctification. It's the will of God that in everything we give thanks. It's the will of God that we serve the Lord as faithful believers in this world. That's God's will in general. We can think about, and we did for a time, consider God's will in particular. That is to say, every believer has a path through life that he or she must tread. God's will for you is not his will for me. God has a plan for you. God has a plan for me. The Apostle Paul himself was a man who was told that God would tell him what his will was for him. Remember how he prayed when he first got converted. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Basically, he's asking God, what is your will for me? What do you want me to do with my life? And the Lord showed him. And he became the apostle to the Gentiles. But as we read this prayer in Colossians 1, the main thrust of Paul's desire for the people here expressed concerning the will of God was that they might have a full understanding of God's will for their whole lives in Christ. 
He wanted them to have a complete knowledge of God's eternal purpose for them, His overall plan for them. And the way that they could grasp what they had in Christ was to find out more about Christ from His Word, as they'd be taught by His Spirit. It is the Lord's desire for us, as it was for the Colossians, that we might be enlightened concerning the will of God. The second thing that Paul desired was that they be endowed with the wisdom of God. We made the point that wisdom and knowledge are not exactly the same thing. The Gnostics placed a lot of emphasis on knowledge, getting to know things. But that's not necessarily real wisdom. Wisdom is knowing how to make good use of the knowledge that you have. That's wisdom. And there's a lot of people who have knowledge, but they're not wise. You can be an educated fool. That's the reality. But Paul is making it clear that his desire for the people of God there in Colossae was that they would be endowed with all wisdom. He was teaching them that Christ was all that they needed. But he wanted their knowledge of Christ to be completed. That's why he used the word filled in verse 9. Be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom. The word filled means to be completed or to be controlled. We made the point that it's a word in the Greek that's used of a ship that's rigged, that's stored, and that's ready to sail. It's complete. Everything is ready. And knowing Christ is all the knowledge that you and I need. I'm not saying you don't need education in your life. I'm not saying you don't need to go to school. What I'm saying is for spiritual progress to be made in your experience, all you need is a deep growing knowledge of Christ and of his word. And that's what you have to strive to get. The word knowledge here is used and it is really that which has to do with a growing understanding of the vital truths of our faith. Enlightenment in biblical knowledge. Growing in the Lord. As I say, wisdom is more than just accumulated knowledge. It's more than just having a grasp of certain facts. Knowledge and wisdom belong together, but you can be knowledgeable without being wise. Wisdom, again I say, is knowing how to make a proper use of the facts. What we know has to govern our practice. And this is what Paul desired for the Colossians. That God's will would be applied to their everyday living. We need wisdom to live. Wisdom that comes from God and he promises it to us. If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. And the wisdom that Paul is referring to, it comes from God, but it also comes from meditating on God's word. There's a third thing. He prayed for the Colossian believers that they might be enabled in their walk with God. And all of these belong together. There's there's a building up of these terms. Really the prayer of Paul in verse 10 is that they might live lives that are worthy of the Lord. Walking 
righteously here and now in the world. Walking in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. That should be your main concern and mine. Am I pleasing the Lord? Am I walking with God? Am I living in a way that's bringing honour to Him? What doth the Lord require of thee? But to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. It's so important, isn't it, to live like a Christian. Moody said that every Bible ought to be bound in shoe leather. In other words, people putting their religion into practice. And so there's a progression here. The more that we know God, the more that we know His will, the more that we love the Lord, the more we love the Lord, the more we're going to seek to obey Him in thought, word, and deed. That brings me to the next three requests. The next three desires. What did Paul desire for the church in Colossae? Well, verse 10 shows us that he asked the Lord that they might be effective in their work for God. That they might be effective in their work for God. He uses the term being fruitful. One commentator put it like this. The result of a walk worthy of the Lord is a worthwhile work for the Lord. A devoted life will produce diligent service for Christ. The result of a walk worthy of the Lord is a worthwhile work for the Lord. A devoted life will produce diligent service for Christ. You look at the subject of good works in the Bible. Good works are not a means to salvation. Far from it. Good works are never looked upon as the root of grace. Good works are the fruit of grace. Good works follow from true salvation. That's why the Bible speaks about being saved not by good works, but unto good works. I'm thinking of the words of Ephesians chapter 2. I'm sure many of us, maybe all of us, know these words pretty much off by heart. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But it doesn't stop there. When it says, not of works, lest any man should boast, it goes on in verse 10 to say, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We don't want to get the cart before the horse. The good works don't lead to salvation. The good works follow from salvation. You come to Christ. He's the one who saves you. And then those good works are the evidence in the life that He has saved you. Saved not by good works, saved Unto good works. This is the biblical order. And Paul emphasizes that repeatedly, not just in Ephesians 2, but also in Titus chapter 2. If we turn over to that little epistle, Titus, just before Philemon, Titus chapter 2, look at verse 14. 
Speaking of Jesus, our Savior, it says, who gave himself for us, that in order that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. This is the purpose for which we have been saved, that we might bring forth fruits of righteousness. This is also taught in the next chapter, Titus 3, verse 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Look at verse 8. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. That they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. There you have the horse before the cart. You believe on Christ and the works of the life will follow. Now in Colossians itself, Paul speaks of this in chapter 2 and verse number 6. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. You've received the Lord, you've believed on him, now walk in him. You see, it is the fruit of godly living that will impress others in the world concerning our profession of faith. It's not so much what you say to people that will impress them, though we do want to speak forth the truth. It's what you do. It's how you live. It's the way you conduct yourself in front of them. It is your demeanor, your manner of life, your everyday behavior in front of them. That's what impresses them. And that's why I like to quote Matthew 5.16. Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men... Why? That they may see your good works and do what? And glorify your Father which is in heaven. See, living the Christian life actually directs people's attention to the Lord. We're not directing them to ourselves. We don't want them to think we're great. We want them to think that God is great. That the Lord Jesus is great. Now here's the thing, before we ever came to know Christ as our Saviour, we were totally unfruitful. We didn't bring forth fruits of righteousness, we didn't bring forth fruit to His honour and praise, we were bad trees bringing forth bad fruit. It's interesting that when Paul wrote to Philemon concerning that slave that had run away, and while he had run away to Rome he got saved, Onesimus, Paul, in speaking about this man and the change that had come about in him and how that Philemon should take him back, not so much as a slave anymore, but as a brother beloved, as a fellow Christian. He says there in Philemon, verses 10 and 11, concerning Onesimus, that he was unprofitable, but is now profitable both to thee and to me. Now you wouldn't know this from the English, but if you were to look at the Greek language, you would see that Paul was using a play on words, which had to do with the meaning of the name of Onesimus. Because Onesimus' name means profitable. 
because he was very unprofitable before he got saved. It was a rascal. He'd probably stolen some of Philemon's goods and ran away. But then when he ran away to Rome and he met Paul, he got saved. And now he wanted to be reconciled to his master. And so, having been unprofitable, now he's going to live up to his name, Onesimus. He's going to be profitable. And that's what happens to people who get saved. What fruit had ye then? The Lord says, in those days when you lived in sin. I'm quoting here from Romans chapter 6. The actual words there are Romans chapter 6, verses 21 and 22. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? How fruitful were you in the days when you weren't saved? For the end of those things is death. But now, being made free from sin, that is, cleansed from your sins, justified from your sins, and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. There's come about a change in you, so that now you're not bringing forth bad fruit anymore, but good fruit. Fruit bearing is the evidence of the reality of our religion. The Lord Jesus taught this in the parables of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 13. In particular, in Matthew chapter 13, from verse 8, uh, we read the following about the seed that was sown by the sower. But other, that's other seed, fell into good ground and brought forth fruit. Some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. What was it that was different about the good ground as compared to the wayside, the thorny ground, and the rocky ground? This is the difference. The seed that fell onto good ground brought forth fruit. There was fruitfulness. And again, you look at verse 23 of Matthew 13. And the Lord gives the interpretation. But he that receives seed into the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, which also beareth fruit and bringeth forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. The person who's truly the Lord's brings forth fruit. On the other hand, we read a story of the Lord when he came to a fig tree. And when he looked at that fig tree, he saw that the fig tree was covered in leaves. Now you have to understand in Palestine that when a fig tree has leaves, it already has fruit. That's evidence that it has fruit. The fruit comes on the fig tree and then it's covered in leaves. So when the Lord saw that tree, it was covered in leaves. He rightly would have said, there's a tree that's bearing fruit. But as he came closer, what did he find out? He found out that on that tree there was nothing but leaves. No fruit. That tree was a living lie. Because it was giving forth every indication that it had fruit. It had leaves, therefore it must have fruit. But it didn't have fruit. There was nothing but leaves. And that is indicative 
of a Christian profession without the reality. And there are people like that. They give every appearance of being a Christian and they profess to be Christians. And you ask them if they're Christians, they'll tell you that they're Christians. But in their lives, there's nothing but leaves. There's no fruit. The fruit isn't there. They just have the outward show. God wants us to bear fruit. He wants us to bear fruit for His glory. You read John 15, where the Lord speaks of the vine and the branches. He talks about fruitfulness there. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. He talks about more fruit. He talks about much fruit. And Paul here says, in Colossians 1, to get back to this prayer, being fruitful. What is he praying for these believers? They already are fruitful. How do you know that? Well, because in verse 6 Paul said that. He talked about the gospel that they had received, the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come unto you as it is in all the world. Notice this, and bringeth forth fruit, as it doth also in you. So the gospel was bearing fruit in these people, and it bore the fruits of love and faith. Paul referred to that. Verse 4, we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love which you have to all the saints. Those things are fruits. In fact, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians is love. That's the first one. Love, joy, peace, and so on. The fruit of the Spirit. These people already were fruitful. So what's Paul praying for? When he says being fruitful, in the Greek language he's actually using what is called a present continuous participle. I don't expect you to understand all of that. Maybe you're good at parts of speech. Some people are not, even when it comes to English. But take it from me, this present continuous participle, which is translated here, being fruitful, is Paul praying that the fruit-bearing of their lives would be constant and ongoing. In other words, yes, you are a fruitful people, but I want that to continue and I want that to grow. So that you become more fruitful. You're bearing more and more fruit for the Lord. That's the thought here. Now, in order to continue bearing fruit in an ongoing way, the child of God has to abide in Christ. He has to have fellowship and communion with Him. The Christian life and communion with God is something that has to be cultivated. We have to work at it. It doesn't just happen as a one-time shot and then you don't ever have to read your Bible or pray or sit under the Word of God. We need to be growing in an ongoing way. Abiding in Christ. Fellowshipping and communing with Him. We used to sing with the children in Sunday school when I was little. Read your Bible. Pray every day if you want to grow. Now God works in us to bear fruit through us. That's why the prophet Hosea in chapter 14 verse 8 of his book says, From me is thy fruit found. Now the interesting thing is, in that book of Hosea, Israel as a name of the nation is often interchangeable with Ephraim. And sometimes when the Lord is speaking to them, he doesn't say Israel, he says Ephraim. 
You know why? Because the word Ephraim means fruitful. And he tells them, Ephraim, from me is thy fruit found. You don't bring forth righteousness on your own. It doesn't come from you. It comes from me. God works in us to bear fruit through us. That's why we have to be in communion with him. Fruit bearing, if you like, is the result of the life of Christ being lived in us. And so we need his fellowship. That's what Paul's praying about. Notice again verse 10. That, this is what he's praying, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. If you're not increasing in the knowledge of God, you're not going on with the Lord. You should be growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Getting to know Him better each day. If I don't know my wife better now, after 41 some years of marriage, than I did when we first got married, there's something seriously wrong. Increasing in knowledge. How do you increase in the knowledge of God? What does Paul mean when he says this? And increasing in the knowledge of God. How do you increase in the knowledge of God? Sitting with a fishing pole on a Sunday morning at a river and looking up into the sky at all the beauties of creation? No, that's not how you increase in the knowledge of God. I once heard of a fellow who said, I would rather be fishing on a Sunday morning and think about God than go to church on Sunday morning and think about fishing. You know what happened to that fellow? It took a massive stroke when he was still in his 40s. And guess what he started doing all the time after that? Started going to church. I'd rather be fishing and think about God than go to church and think about fishing. How do you increase in the knowledge of God? Prayer. Studying your Bible. Reading about God. Learning about God from good and godly men who have written commentaries and books and helpful literature. Sitting under the preached word. How people think that they're going to increase in the knowledge of God and be great Christians and go on with God without ever being in the house of God under the sound of the preaching of the word, I'll never know. That's not how it happens. When someone says to you, I can be just as good a Christian at home than I can being at church, you tell them, that's not true. I'm not talking about people that are sick. I'm not talking about shut-ins. I'm talking about able-bodied people who could be in the house of God under the preaching of the Word and they just don't bother. Because they're not interested. And I would say this, if they're not interested, they're not saved. Period. People make all kinds of issues. Oh, well, somebody's a backslider or somebody is this and somebody's that. Look, people who have no interest 
in the things of God, in going on with God, in being under the ministry of the Word of God, first of all, they're not scriptural in their beliefs. Because why do you think the Bible says what it says about sitting under the Word? About those who received the Word that was preached? About the qualifications of ministers? So there's going to be ministers and no people to preach to? Is that biblical? You know, the Lord's going to give us all the qualifications of the minister, but we don't need ministers. Because we can be just as good a Christian by staying home without being under a minister. No. No, you're wrong. That's not what the Bible teaches. We are to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We increase in knowledge as we're fed, as we're taught the Word of God. Oh, how Paul desired that Colossians might get to know their God. That was his own desire, wasn't it? He said it in Philippians 3, verse 10. That I may know Him. I want to know the Lord. Paul, I thought you already knew the Lord. Yes, Paul knew the Lord. But he wanted to get to know Him better. That's what he's talking about. That I may know Him. I want to get to know Him in a greater way. And that's what we're going to be doing for all eternity, by the way. That's my own conviction. When we get to heaven, we're not all of a sudden just going to be perfect in knowledge about God. For all eternity, we're going to be studying and thinking about Christ and God and learning more and more of what it is that we have in Him. So we need to be getting ready for heaven before we go there. And that's what Paul's praying about. Praying that they might be enabled in their walk with God. Praying that they might be effective in their work for God by getting to know the Lord. And then finally Paul prayed that the Colossians might be empowered in their weakness by God. Empowered in their weakness by God. That brings in verse 11. Strengthened. We know what that is, don't we? Gaining strength, getting stronger, stronger, strengthened with all might, according to His glorious power, unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. We have a cross-reference here in Ephesians chapter 3. It's verse 16. Paul's praying for these people. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man. Strengthened with might by his Spirit. Don't we want to be strong Christians? This is what Paul wanted for the people of God. He wanted them to be effective in their work for God. But he wanted them to be empowered in their weakness by God. We'll come to the third one in a minute or two. I got ahead of myself a little there. We're on the fifth one. But that's the second one tonight. Empowered in their weakness by God. Strength and power is what Paul is referring to here. Daniel 11.32 says, The people that do know their God shall be strong and shall do exploits. The knowledge of God leads to strength from God. Now what do we need strength for? 
What did the Colossians need to be strengthened for in order that they might resist the world, the flesh and the devil? That's why we need to be strengthened by God's power. Romans chapter 8 verse 13 puts it like this. If you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify or put to death the deeds of the body, ye shall live. We have no strength in ourselves. When Paul wrote Philippians 4.13, he didn't say, I can do all things, period. That's Joel Osteen theology. You can do it. You've got this. I can do all things. The power of positive thinking. He didn't get that by himself. He borrowed that from Norman Vincent Peale. Who influenced the glass cathedral man. Who many people saw through. No. You're not going to have power by yourself. You don't summon up willpower by pulling up your own bootlaces and saying, I'm going to do this, I've got this. No, you don't. Paul didn't write, I can do all things, period. He said, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. That's it. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Now you think about the Colossian Christians. They were people who were under pressure. There were a lot of different pressures upon them. Secular pressures. Pressures from false religionists. Persecution. They needed endurance. They needed perseverance. Something that only the Lord could give them. They could only keep going through His power. Only the Lord can grant us patience and long-suffering and joy under our trials and crosses. And that's what Paul was praying for in verse 11. Unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. When Paul was in a time of trouble, probably to do with his eyesight, but whatever the problem was, he, he wanted the Lord to take it away from him. He thought it was hindering his ministry. He prayed three times that it might be removed from him. And Second Corinthians 11 or, or sorry, 2 Corinthians 12 tells us that the Lord basically said to Paul, No, I'm not taking it away from you. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you strength to endure it. I'm going to give you the ability to press on in spite of it. And so Paul was able to rejoice that the power of Christ was given to him to endure even under affliction, to bear up under the trial. This is what the Lord was desirous of giving to the Colossians. Paul prayed for that, that they might be strengthened, that they might have all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. In other words, to have grace to bear up under their trials and to still rejoice in spite of the circumstances. That's the hard part, isn't it? You know, it's easy to say, praise the Lord when everything's going well. Not so much when things aren't going so well. But that's when we're supposed to say it. That's when we're supposed to believe it. Rejoicing in spite of the circumstances. Why? Because we have been empowered in our weakness by God. 
That brings me to the third thing, finally. Paul desired for these people, not only that they might be effective in their work for God and empowered in their weakness by God, but that they might be encouraged to the worship of God. I'm not repeating myself here. This is a separate point that I want us to think about because in verse 12, you have the result of all of this, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. When I say he was praying that they might be encouraged to the worship of God, I mean in terms of their thankfulness, giving thanks to the Lord, being grateful to the Lord. That's what the Apostle is praying for here, that the Colossians, in spite of everything, might be given a grateful spirit, that it might be seen in them. He starts out in verse 3 by saying, We give thanks to God, praying always for you. But he wanted them to give thanks. Chapter 3, verse 15, he repeats it. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Be ye thankful. Not complaining, not murmuring like the Israelites. Be ye thankful. Are you thankful? Am I thankful? When we join the grumblers that I mentioned this morning who grumble on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, grumble the whole week through. When we join the grumblers, we have lost our joy. Think about this. Just stop and think about this. When you feel like complaining and murmuring, you're not filled with joy when you're doing that. I know I'm not. When I'm complaining and murmuring, I haven't got a big smile on my face and laughing and feeling joyful. I'm feeling miserable. Everything's, everything's bad. Everything's worthy of complaining. Oh, we're so guilty of that. We've lost our joy. Paul mentions that in verse 11. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience. And long-suffering, that's putting up with things with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father. Oh, that the Lord would fill our hearts with joy in spite of the circumstances. You see, we started out with this tonight, deliberately. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. We ought to be thankful. There's so much to be thankful for. So much. Instead of thinking about what we haven't got, think about what we have got. That'll change your perspective. When you start realizing things are not really that bad after all. I've been doing some research recently, just as a sort of a side interest, into what happened during the Holocaust. When millions of Jewish people and others were put to death by the Nazis. What a terrible, terrible time that was. Some of the experiences that people had, and they speak about it today, old folks, and some of it is on record from people who are now dead, things that happen. It's really hard to listen to. It's really hard to watch. 
But in watching that and listening to some of that, I thought about the fact that in our day, people complain about the most trivial things. And yet some of those poor souls, that the things that they had to endure, the privations, they didn't even have proper food, they had to work all day, even though they had no nourishment. Some of them, when they could, would try to find garbage, rotting garbage, and rummage through that garbage if they could get near it, and find old potato peelings and anything at all that they could eat. Anything. You go into the average restaurant in America today, and you look at a table after people have left, when their meal is over, and half the food's still on the plate. And you think to yourself, people are still not thankful. Oh, how thankful we ought to be. God is so good to us. Even in material things, even in just regular everyday things, common grace, the things that we enjoy in common with other men. We have so much, and yet we complain so much. Ephesians 5.20 says this, Giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or as it is in Philippians 4 verse 6, Be careful or anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known unto God. J.C. Ryle used to say, Your prayers ought to be well seasoned with the pepper of thanksgiving. And what are these things for which we are to be thankful? Paul doesn't even go there into the everyday necessities of life. He doesn't talk about the gifts of common grace. He talks about spiritual things in verse 12 through to verse 14. Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet or fit to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. What's that? That's heaven. That's glory. We have an inheritance along with those saints who are now in heavenly light. We have all this that we have in this life and heaven to follow. Should we not be thankful? Verse 13, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, that's the devil himself, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. The words in the margin signify in the Greek, the son of his love. The Lord has delivered us from the thraldom of Satan. He's cut the chains that bound us and he's brought us into the kingdom of his dear son. A son in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Imagine that. We've been redeemed for all eternity. All of our sins, and I mean all of them, are forgiven. Not one sin, not one sin against our name. Because Jesus died for us. Should we not praise and thank God for this? This is what Paul prayed for the Colossians. That they might be a people who were giving thanks unto the Lord for what he had done for them. May God make us to be a thankful people.
May we never be guilty of ungratefulness. All through my growing up years, when I attended the Raven Hill Church and in the Martyrs Church, when the opening prayer would be prayed of a Sunday night service, before the minister would pray, we would all sing, Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me thy great salvation, so rich and so free. Thankfulness. May the Lord work that in us more and more each day of our Christian lives. Lord, make us truly thankful.